0: Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 121. 121, coincidentally, being the number of children that Queen Victoria planned on having, but had to settle with a mere nine children. Slacker. Alright, I know we haven't been doing episode numbers before, but I had a request and I figured we might as well start. So, 121 episodes so far, not counting the bonus episodes, the pub quizzes, and the members' episodes. That's a hell of a lot. And speaking of members' episodes, make sure you update your feeds. Last week, I launched an episode on Anglo-Saxon childhoods, and another fun episode is in production for the release this week, and I think you're going to like it. And as always, if you want to become a member, you can do so over at my site, thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Membership enables me to keep this thing going, so if you're at all interested, it's cheap and it comes with fun little extras. Okay, enough of that. Let's get on with the show. So last week, we ended with Augustine converting the people of Kent to Christianity, and Æthelbert coming out as Christian. Now, was he converted by Augustine, or had he already been converted? We just don't know. But this is an excellent spot for us to pause and briefly chat about theories of history. For a very long time, the Great Man approach was the norm for how history was taught. In broad strokes, the great man theory suggests that history is changed through the efforts of great men. And so, that's who we should focus on. For example, focus on Napoleon when talking about the French Revolution. Focus on George Washington when talking about the American Revolution. Focus on Bono when talking about you 2 And that makes for simple and compelling narratives because you don't get bogged down with the vast multitudes, and you're able to create statuesque caricatures of historical figures and essentially carve them out of marble. But it leaves a lot of people behind, like The Edge. And honestly, it's how we end up with people only knowing about Caesar getting stabbed to death when you ask them about ancient Rome. It creates incredibly simple narratives that don't give a full understanding of history, but instead just give little vignettes that... Don't really communicate all that much. And I think this massive simplification and overfocus on individual leaders also leads to deification. It gives the impression that some of these leaders were just demigods, and we will never see their like again. And how could you not feel that way? Through the great man bias, it seems like there's just a natural instinct to elevate achievements and whitewash flaws. The contradictions and cracks in their characters don't really fit into the narrative, and at least at the casual level, they tend to get erased. Here in America, we see that all the time. For a shockingly large part of the population, the Founding Fathers have been simplified and deified to a stunning degree. The contradictions, the startling number of disagreements on key constitutional issues, and the incredible acrimony between them has all been but forgotten. Because of this... They're becoming mere statues to be pointed at and quoted as needed. And the raw humanity that made them interesting is being ground to dust. And more importantly, the multitudes who came before them and those who stood behind them are almost entirely forgotten. Honestly, a few signatories on a piece of paper wouldn't have mattered at all were it not for the support they were receiving from segments of the population. Moreover, the American Revolution probably would not have happened if it wasn't for the discussions that occurred decades earlier in French coffee houses, If it wasn't for the radical political tracts that were being written and passed around. And it probably wouldn't have happened if the American population didn't start to have those same discussions and start to read those same tracts and start to get influenced by all that political thought. And yet far too many people talk about this period as if it was just a handful of individuals who just had an idea and ran with it. So, as you might have gathered, I don't like the Great Man Theory. I lean much closer to the cultural and population view rather than the actions of any specific individual. But that being said, I don't believe history is black and white. And honestly, I do think that the Great Man Theory has its place. And King Æthelbert of Kent is an excellent example of why it is so important to look at the totality of history rather than just the king or just the population. Which is why I'm bringing all of this up right now. So on the one hand, the temptation might be to say, Oh hey, so this period of history is proof that the Great Man theory works. After all, it's because of Augustine and Athelbert that all this stuff is happening, right? And that is certainly what Bede focuses on, as do many scholars. And when looking at Æthelbert's actions, we do see some unilateral decisions being made. He allowed Augustine and his nearly 40 missionaries to preach in what was ostensibly his capital. He might have even invited the church into Kent, according to some sources. He also allowed Queen Bertha and her bishop to rebuild a church, which was probably St. Martin's. There's a lot in there that seems unilateral, and gives the sense that one man was affecting history. And in a way, I think he was. And since we brought her up, what about Queen Bertha? Bede largely ignores her, but she had a role to play too. And a rather big one that was helped in no small part by her membership in the aristocracy. So when we look at her role, it's clear that the great man approach applies there too. After all, not all great men were men. However, it really isn't as black and white as it might seem at first. King Æthelbert was clearly working within a cultural context. Like we've spoken about for a few episodes, switching religions was dodgy business. And it very much seems like he recognized the politically dangerous position that he was in because he tested the waters by inviting Augustine to convert the population of Canterbury. And he didn't require anyone to convert, but he did provide incentives to conversion. It's plain as day to me that Aethelbert was waiting until the political winds would allow conversion, rather than trying to simply force through a conversion, which could have ended up with him getting killed. And that's just looking at Kent. You can also broaden the scope and look at what was going on in all the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms south of the Humber. And when you do that, you'll see some interesting stuff. For example, you'll note that this didn't happen when King Chalon of Wessex was Bretwalda. Now, Chalon had approximately the same amount of power as King Aethelbert, so he could have converted if he wanted to. But the Pope went for Kent, not for Wessex. Why? Well, culturally, Kent was already sliding towards the continent, which was heavily under the influence of the Roman Church. Of all the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, Kent was the most likely to be friendly to the Church based on their Frankish ties. And those ties weren't just through the aristocracy, but they were also just throughout society as well. The people of Kent were dressing in surprisingly Frankish ways. The Franks were fashionable. So there was a cultural link there that could be exploited. And that didn't exist anywhere else in Eastern Britannia. And to avoid conversion would irritate Rome and Francia, which were two entities that Æthelbert really wanted to have as allies and definitely did not want to have as enemies. You would have been all too aware of how small his kingdom was. You weren't finding Franks dressing up in Kentish ways, after all. This power disparity went in one direction. And then you have the issue of Christians already living within his borders. The Franks were popular. And the Franks were Christian. Conversions might have already been occurring within his borders. And then you have the Britons who were being brought under Anglo-Saxon control. And we almost certainly had some Britons who were holding on to their old Christian ways. So the reality is that there were probably already quite a few Christians there within Kent, not the least of which was his own queen, Bertha. And so the political winds might have been starting to turn towards conversion. And Æthelbert, like many leaders throughout history, might have been running as fast as he could to get ahead of the crowd in order to appear like he was leading it. So what I'm getting at here is that Æthelbert's free hand to convert really wasn't all that free. It was constrained by what the people of Kent wanted and what they would accept. Moreover, it was influenced by what was politically possible through the influence of the continent and also potentially the British Christians living within the kingdom and also done under motivating factors that existed outside of his kingdom, both in Francia and also in Rome. This wasn't a single great man meeting another great man and deciding on a switch. This looks more like a king making some actions to nudge his kingdom in a direction, but also running to catch up to where his kingdom was already headed. And I think that's often how history works. Leaders can make decisions that have an impact, but the available decisions are determined by the cultural climate that they're in. And so to ignore the people and the external political realities is to ignore a big part of the story. So there you have it. Some thoughts on theory and how I'm approaching this story. And hopefully, it got you thinking about how you approach history, both ancient history as well as recent history. And with that out of the way, let's talk about Augustine. So Augustine was feeling pretty happy with himself. He had gone to the edge of the world, and now the Roman Catholic Church had a foothold out there. And the king was openly Christian as well. All in all, this was a pretty good get for the church, and it had promotion written all over it. Now, was it hard? Probably. I mean, we aren't told who his nearly 40 missionaries were, nor are we told what happened to them, or even what the Pope thought of them, but we can surmise that at least some of them had a rough time of it based upon what Bede had to say about them demonstrating that they were willing to suffer and die for their faith. So we can be pretty sure that this wasn't the most easy of conversions. And as a result, you might be wondering if those nearly 40 missionaries were rewarded Or if Augustine took all the glory while they were left muttering about what a prima donna he was. And I'm sorry to tell you that we have no idea. But at least based on what Bede is telling us, Augustine was the one who got the spotlight. So Bede tells us that sometime before 601, Augustine left Kent and traveled to Arles, a much more staunchly Christian seat of power on the continent. Now, we're not told whether his poor, potentially scarred and bruised missionaries also came along, but we do know that while Augustine was there, he received his orders from Pope Gregory. Augustine was to become an archbishop. Not the archbishop of Canterbury. No. Augustine would be the archbishop of the English. In fact, Canterbury wasn't even going to be the seat of power, but rather London, the old Roman trading town that used to be known as Londinium, would be the Sea of England. Well, that's a bit awkward, and it makes me wonder if the Pope knew about the political realities on the ground, because London was held by Sled, king of the East Saxons. And Sled was pagan. And he also possessed a rather awesome name, Sled. So we have stuff, and we have sled. And for some reason, these names went out of fashion, which I think is a crime. Anyway, so Augustine had a bit of a hurdle to overcome, since it's unlikely that Sled would be excited about a foreign and exclusionary religion being centered in arguably the most important town in his kingdom. But on the upside, Augustine had a couple angles that he could work. First, King Aethelbert of Kent was powerful. More powerful than King Sled. And second, King Sled's son, a man by the name of Sabert, was married to Ricola. And Ricola was King Aethelbert's daughter. So maybe Augustine's Kentish allies could be of some service. Though convincing the king of Kent to help might be a bit of a challenge, even if he was filled with religious fervor. After all, Augustine would be asking the king of Kent to risk war in order to move the seat of Christian power out of his own kingdom and into a rival sub-king's territory. How do you even begin to sell that? Even suggesting it might turn Æthelbert from an ally into an enemy. So London might have been a great choice if you're looking at it on paper from Rome and you're only focused on trade routes, centrality, and the like. But politically, on the ground, Augustine likely read those orders and said, holy shit, are you kidding me? So what I'm getting at here is Augustine kind of got a mixed bag from the Pope what with his promotion coming paired with an unreasonable plan. The new archbishop also had a number of pressing issues that he wanted the pope's guidance on regarding the administration of his new diocese. So he wrote a letter and he had it carried to Rome, and then he waited for a response. And I really like these questions because they give you a window into what was on his mind, what might have been going on at the time, and also what his priorities were, or at least what he was thinking about first when he started writing. So the first question had to do with administrative issues within the clergy dividing up the offerings and that sort of stuff and the Pope responded by letting him know that he wanted Augustine to engage directly with the clergy and provide rules and guidance for them by living among them and additionally the tithes were to be divided in quarters with one quarter going to Augustine and his household one for the clergy one for the poor and one for the repair of the churches. And that's a pretty impressive stipend, isn't it? I mean, Augustine is getting the same amount of money as all of the poor people in Britain combined. That's a hell of a job if you can get it. And then in his second question, Augustine raised a question that I actually would have asked myself. Though I probably would have raised it before the, hey, how much money do I get question, but whatever. Basically, Augustine wanted to know why, if there was only one correct path, only one true faith, why there are different customs for different churches, all within the Roman Catholic community. Do you see what he's asking there? He's basically saying, we were taught that the Roman way was the only proper way to worship, but I've seen all other kinds of worship in my travels, all ostensibly within the Roman Catholic church. So which customs are the correct ones? And thus, what should I teach the English? What's the correct path? And the Pope's response was actually surprisingly small l liberal from a religious perspective. And I suppose that makes sense, since his goal was to convert pagans and then sort out any issues later on, rather than to enforce total unanimity. So what Gregory tells Augustine is that he should look at the holy places and customs, and choose the things that are pious, religious, and upright. And then adopt them and teach them to the English. Now that seems like a massive break from religious doctrine, but the reality is that it wasn't that unusual of a stance for the Pope. After all, Pope Gregory also advocated consecrating pagan holy sites and altars and converting them to Christian sites in order to make conversion easier on the newly converted population. At least in this, He doesn't seem to have been a firebrand, but rather something more of a realist and recognized that you really have to pick your battles sometimes. Augustine's third question was how to punish someone who had stolen from the church. He doesn't provide details, so it isn't clear if this was a just-in-case question or if a theft really occurred, and if it had occurred, whether it was by the general population, the congregation, or even by a member of the clergy. No details are given. But it must have been important, since it was featured right after money and religious issues. And unfortunately, Gregory doesn't give a clear answer. He says that the goods are to be returned. And then he says that rich people should be punished with fines, while poor people should get whipped. Charming. And he also says that some people should get heavier punishment than others, but he doesn't say why. Merely pointing out that punishment should come from a place of charity, rather than a place of passion sort of like disciplining children. In fact, he says it should be exactly like disciplining children. Augustine's fourth question was whether two brothers could marry two sisters from different families. And the Pope said that was fine. Augustine then stepped it up a notch and asked how much marriage was allowed within a family. For example, could a man marry his stepmother or her relatives? In response, the Pope voiced concerns regarding inbreeding, and while he seems to have been fairly lax on some issues, he definitely had strong views on sexual matters. So Gregory said that a couple must be separated by three or four generations. As for the issue with the stepmother, the Pope connected a couple biblical phrases, quote, "...thou shalt not uncover the nakedness of thy father," end quote, along with, quote, "...they shall be two in one flesh," end quote. And by doing that, he reasoned that sex would be uncovering the nakedness of the father, essentially. So guys shouldn't share partners with their fathers or it'd be a heinous crime. Thus, no go on the stepmom crush. Sister-in-laws were also out due to the one flesh definition. And actually, if this doesn't give you a window into what the love lives among the Anglo-Saxon aristocracy and Kent looked like, I don't know what will. But right at the end, Gregory goes back to being a kind of easygoing pope. The Anglo-Saxons aren't supposed to marry their stepmothers or other relatives going forward. But if they have already, well, they're grandfathered in. Again, we're seeing that Gregory is more concerned with the practical realities of conversion rather than enforcing total submission. It's one of the things that actually makes him a fairly interesting pope. All right, Augustine's sixth question had to do with how to ordain bishops since he was the only bishop in Britain and there wouldn't be any others on the island to witness the ordination. And that's a completely valid question. What do you do when you need bishops to witness an ordination when you're the only one there? And the Pope's response was fairly straightforward. Essentially, it came down to this. Dude, just get three or four bishops to come across the channel when you need them. It isn't that far. You're not getting a pass on that requirement. Besides, this should be a happy event that's witnessed by your brothers. Come on. Next, Augustine wanted to know how he was supposed to deal with the bishops of France and Britain. As in, did he have control of the bishops in France? That's kind of cheeky, right? He was just named the Archbishop of England, and now he wants to see if he can assert his power across the channel as well. Well, the Pope was having none of it. Augustine only had power over the bishops in Britain, period. I love the fact that he asked, though. It's like your parents giving you an old beater for your first car, and you saying, thanks, but can I have your car too? Now, the eighth question has many parts, and Augustine said that they were all things that were, quote, requisite to be known by the rude nation of the English, end quote. (laughs) And I really love how you get the impression from that, that these questions gave him the heebie-jeebies. It's just good stuff. All right. So here's what Augustine wanted to know. Could a pregnant woman be baptized? How long after she's given birth should she be refused access to the church? When can an infant be baptized? When can a couple start having sex following a birth? Could a woman come into the church and have communion while she was menstruating? And I think this might be my favorite. Can a man enter the church and have communion without bathing first if he had recently had sex? Reading between the lines, I can imagine Unferth standing next to Augustine saying, Hey, Augie, can you smell that? And given the focus of the early church, it probably shouldn't surprise you that these were the questions where Gregory had the most to say. Not authority, not religious customs, not even money... Nope. Those were apparently minor issues to be dealt with quickly. But the stuff regarding women, and even worse, their bits, well, that requires some serious discussion. And I'm sure you're on the edge of your seat wondering what the rules are. So rather than going through the extensive discussion that the Pope had, I'll just give you the bullet points. First, you should not baptize a pregnant woman. As for how long a new mother is barred from the church? If it was a baby boy, 33 days. If it was a baby girl, 66 days. And all of this came from the Old Testament. However, there was a small loophole in that you can baptize a woman who's recently given birth if there's a danger of death. And the same rule applies to newborns as well. Immediate baptism was totally allowed. As for sex, no sex until the baby is no longer breastfed. Brutal. Though it might be that they figured out that the chances of getting pregnant during breastfeeding is reduced, and the church just wasn't crazy about the idea of having sex for pleasure. So any sex during that period was probably assumed to be kind of sinful. Interestingly, during his discussion, the Pope took the time to comment on how much he disapproved of wet nursing, which is something that came up in the Childhood Members Only episode, actually. And he also brought up how couples shouldn't have sex during her period upon pain of death. Seriously, death. So that's kind of extreme. But on the other hand, the Pope said that menstruating women could still go to church and receive communion. So I guess there's that. And actually, here's where I kind of start to like Pope Gregory, if it wasn't for the whole sex during one week of the month equals death stance. Because he reminds Augustine that menstruation isn't a crime and that women shouldn't be punished for it. Now, his understanding for why it occurs is flawed, but at least he's not approaching it as a vile sin. And I'm damn close to wanting to high-five him for it because not everyone will be that enlightened as we go forward. As for whether you can come to church after having sex without bathing first, the answer is a resounding no. And actually, if the sex was recent, You can't even come in, even if you have bathed first. And it makes me wonder if Augustine was closely inspecting his congregation's faces and saying, No, no. You look a bit flushed. And this is the Dark Ages. No one should be that happy and relaxed. I know what you've been up to. Get out. However, there was another small loophole. And it all came down to why you were having sex. If you were having sex to have children, well the decision on whether or not to go to church was up to you. But if you were having sex for pleasure, well, that's just unacceptable. And the couple should, quote, lament their deed, end quote. And I'm sure that's exactly what happened. Okay, and for the final question, Augustine wanted to know whether, after having a vision, you could receive communion and be part of the church. I really wish I knew what prompted this question. Was it Augustine himself, or was someone in the community having visions? What was going on? We just don't know. But the Pope responded that such a person could not enter the church without bathing first and then waiting until the evening. That's because a vision was seen as a form of uncleanliness. There were some caveats there, but basically that's the rule. So those are the questions that seem to have been weighing on Augustine's mind, and the issues he was probably dealing with as he administered his new diocese. Pretty odd stuff, right? And as we go forward, we're going to see the far-reaching effects that Augustine, Gregory, and the Roman Catholic Church will have upon our island at the end of the world. All right. As always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. You can also go to Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash British History, and we're preparing a free giveaway of something kind of fun here pretty soon. You can also follow us on Twitter. Just go to at British Podcast, and there's always the forums, and the forums have a new upgrade. If you go on your iPhone or your iPad or any kind of mobile device, it's going to automatically open up a mobile-friendly version of the forums think looks pretty slick so i think you're gonna like it anyway you can find that by going to thebritishhistorypodcast.com clicking get involved and clicking forums and we'll see you over there all right thanks for listening